Good evening. Welcome to the April 10th, 2023 hearing of the Planning Commission. I am Commissioner Devanchi Patel, Chair of the Commission. Tonight, the Commission will consider the following items. An informational item on performance parking and commercial corridors, um, an amendment to the Arlington County Zoning Ordinance relating to indoor recreation, and redevelopment of the Americana Hotel. Additionally, we will be considering um, PC organizational matters and business. We'd like to share a few logistical points for those members or commissioners participating remotely. We have one commissioner participating remotely at this time. Tonight's meeting is available as a broadcast with closed captioning on Comcast Xfinity channels 25 and 1085, Verizon Fios channels 39 and 40, and the county website. Audio of tonight's meeting is available via phone. If commissioners, presenters, speakers lose internet connectivity during tonight's meeting, please reconnect with us by phone. For um, our presenters or speakers joining us through Microsoft Teams, please keep your phones and devices muted until you're called upon. Please turn off sound to any other devices around you to minimize interference, and please keep your cameras off until the, call, the clerk calls upon you to speak. Actually, there's no public um, speakers or testimony tonight. Um, this is a public forum. Tonight's meeting will be recorded and posted on the county website. All information associated with tonight's meeting, whether written or spoken, is subject to the Virginia Freedom of Information Act requirements. Madam Clerk, will you please call the first item? Okay. Our first item for the evening is on performance parking and commercial corridors. This is an informational item only, so there would be no speakers call for this item. We have Melissa McMahon, thank you, to speak on this item as staff. Thank you. Thank Good you, Melissa. evening, Ms. McMahon. Great. Can everyone hear me? Terrific. Good evening. My name is Melissa McMahon. I'm the Parking and Curb Space Manager for Arlington County, and I appreciate having this opportunity to speak with you tonight. Um, we have recently kicked off um, a special pilot project called Performance Parking and Commercial Corridors. This project is funded by VDOT through um, an innovation and transportation fund, um, innovation and technology and transportation fund. And we are excited to have their support for this um, because we couldn't do a project like this without them. Performance parking in terms of this project, I just wanted to lay out some definitions so they're all kind of talking about the same thing. Um, it is data-driven, using technology to better understand existing parking utilization. To us, performance parking is actively managed. We are managing a parking supply to make parking more convenient and to reduce the negative impacts of hard-to-find parking. This is a, um, a tailored system, the ability to customize to different neighborhoods and blocks based on their actual use. And it's designed to be flexible and responsive. So we, we want our system to ensure that we can respond to changing needs in the community over time. The policy foundation is in our master transportation plan. So um, though it dates back to 2008, 2009, the MTP parking and curb space element did clearly say we should utilize parking meter pricing strategies that vary by hour and or location to better match parking availability and demand. So the purpose of this project is to make our metered parking spaces more available more often by sharing useful information about parking options in real time and ultimately reducing those negative impacts that are associated with the search for metered parking. Things like double parking, cruising, um, and even going somewhere else to do your business. 
So this is a pilot project. Um, it is one approach to potentially making, um, combining occupancy and availability information with pricing to influence demand. So it's not necessarily the be all end all, but this is what we're experimenting with today. I wanted to lay out some things this project doesn't do. So we don't, through this project, seek to increase overall parking meter revenue. We actually don't know what the impacts on meter revenue will be um, when we reach goals set out for this project. Um, this project will not increase meter rates across the board. We anticipate that there will be areas where the prices of parking will go up because they're very high demand areas, but there will also be places where parking meter rates go down because they are lower demand. Um, we will not decrease the number of reserved ADA accessible parking spaces. I've actually presented to the Disability Advisory Commission and we had a really good conversation there about their concerns. Um, and the ADA spaces are a part of this network. They are a part of the project and we will actually learn information about their utilization. But we aren't changing the numbers of them and if anything we might learn about places where we may need more but we're not going to be decreasing. Um, and lastly, I wanted to mention that this project does not create dynamically or fast-changing um, pricing. This isn't a hot lane. This is something where we will set out strategic pricing changes that are based on information about um, utilization across the whole system. And we will probably change them no more than once a quarter because we need to be able to see the impacts of our changes on user behavior. This is just a quick map to show you the areas that we're studying in our pilot project. We have about 4,500 metered spaces in, in the proposed network under the pilot, and they are in the Roslyn-Balston corridor and in that Pentagon City-Crystal City corridor. We are excluding, um, as you could imagine, there's a lot of space on street affected by um, new development projects parking and curb space that's not available right now. We aren't putting sensors and um, inf we aren't using the technology in the spaces that are immediately going to go under construction. So we're doing a lot to coordinate at this stage in time um, between our paving plan and our MOTs for new development to make sure that we don't have incompatible plans going forward. Um, I will give you a quick overview of the technology. The technology in this project is using in-ground sensors, wireless gateways, there will be a staff view dashboard for management and decision making. And there's also going to be a public view web um, app interface. So I would say you can think of it as a mobile friendly website this, at this point, but there's also an API being produced as a part of this project. So there's the ability for those companies, those third party companies that produce apps to use our data set and to actually display it um, in their tools. This project does not capture or store private data. The project doesn't use cameras, so we can't capture information like faces, license plates, or anything about a vehicle other than is a vehicle there or not there in the space. So a little bit about our stall occupancy sensors. These are in ground, they're completely wireless, they're battery operated, and they use such low power that they're basically expected to have a 10 year lifespan, assuming we don't dig up the street. And I can't promise that we won't dig up some of these over the course of the three year project. The wireless gateways will be located primarily on traffic signal poles throughout the county. And these are the conveyors of the sensor data to the cloud so that it can go into our dashboard. These are also low power. They're just using AC, regular outlet power. They use a cellular connection to connect to the cloud. 
And again, these are expected to, to last for 10 years if they're undisturbed. The project approach is, um, is research-based. So this is just sort of giving you a little bit of a flow chart here. But it's a cyclical process of gathering data, analyzing the data that we get that's about occupancy and duration of stay in the spaces, and then implementing pricing changes to try to influence that behavior. Um, so we will be looking at those places of highest demand and then coming up with proposals for how price might be able to be changed to reduce the demand on those blocks and push some of that demand to other lower demand blocks, all with the goal of making it possible for people to find those spaces more easily, more often, and again, reduce the negative externalities. What we learn from every cycle of price change, we feed back into the process, we analyze new data, and then we make additional price change recommendations. Um, it's worth noting that there is no price change that can happen before a board ordinance um, change occurs. Right now, the meter prices are hard-coded and they're flat, basically. So this winter, we expect to go before the board with a request for an ordinance change that gives staff a little more administrative flexibility during the term of the pilot program. So within the two, roughly two years of time, post existing conditions data collection to the end of the pilot, we would be asking for that ability to change prices roughly once a quarter. This slide provides a little summary of our outreach um, and engagement to date. In this phase of the project, we have started with a high-level stakeholders approach. As you can imagine, the metered spaces are in commercial areas. So this is like retail businesses. These are um, a lot of folks who actually might not live here but are using metered parking spaces in our commercial areas too. So we were looking at um, obviously our commissions, our bids, um, economic development organizations, and we've gone before these groups, given a presentation very similar to this one. We've also given our first virtual public meeting. That was in, at the end of February. And that recording is available online for anybody who's interested. And that was that first in, fulsome introduction to the project for anyone in the public. Um, and you can see we are here tonight on April 10th. And we have one additional sort of stakeholder level meeting scheduled at this point in time. But this is really a moving process. And these, these get scheduled um, every day. And we are actually transitioning into a new outreach phase of our project. Um, so the online feedback form opened on February 24th, right after our virtual public meeting. And this actually last week to this week, we've transitioned to the infrastructure installation phase of the project, and it's going to last all summer. So this is when you will probably see and your neighbors will see um, folks out there in the parking spaces, temporary no parking signs, they're core drilling holes in the pavement to put the sensors in, um, and then they're moving along, they're delineating the parking spaces, so parking space delineation is a core piece of this so that we can have one sensor per space. And so we have, we're going to have for the next several months um, a bigger presence out on the street. And in order to manage that presence and make sure the community is seeing what's going on and understanding it as we go, We've got an outreach street team that's going out about two weeks, one to two weeks in advance in every street segment and corridor that we're hitting with construction, um, door to door, knocking on the doors of the businesses, knocking on the doors of the residential um, uh, lobbies of larger buildings, and giving them 
collateral. Some images of some of that collateral are here, sort of what they can expect to see. But basically to try to answer some questions, make them aware, and also point them to our website and to our engagement form, like the ability for them to provide feedback um, on the project at this stage. And the feedback that we're soliciting at this stage is really that um, high level, are the program priorities, are the program goals prioritized in the right way? And do our goals properly represent what people are expecting to see as an outcome? Um, we are tracking all of that outreach so we know that we're getting good coverage and we can fill in the gaps where we need to. And this phase is anticipated to continue throughout the summer as long as we are out there in this construction phase of the project. And that's it for my overview. This is the web link to our program overall and where we are today. Um, we will constantly be updating that with additional aspects in terms of how people can engage, what we're doing. We're actually probably going to put up a photo gallery so people can see some of the, the stuff that's going on on the street and what they might see in person. Um, see how that looks, but um, if you have any questions, happy to answer some tonight, and uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. So um, the matter is with the commissioner, Commissioner Weir. Oh. Commissioner Bagley. When I looked at you, Commissioner Bagley had her hand up already. So. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. That's very interesting. I live in the RB corridor and um, have been very involved in parking, first in my civic association, and every night is a battle when I get home. Um, so when I squinted at this RB map earlier today, it looked, especially in the streets where I live, that it wasn't totally accurate. And so is that, we should just ignore that or? In terms of what? <laughs> well, if, can you pull up the map and maybe can we enlarge it? Yeah, and I know this is sort of a map made for PDF, so. Yeah, this was, a, I had to put the old uh, readers, I was going for the binoculars, so. No. And, and we, um, we have much we better would, information that if you'd like to um, follow up later. It would be later. near Virginia Square, so blow it up. That's okay, so where you have the metro stop there, that's Monroe going north. And there are some meters there, but I don't think they go all the way there because you've got FDIC that's in there. Also, if you look from 10th to North Nelson there, there's only a few meters down on the south side of that. Uh, Quincy Park is there on the left-hand side or what would be the west side. There are no meters along the park side, and nor are there any meters as you get further up on the block on the residential side. So mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious about that. And again, in those neighborhoods, because I'm more familiar with them, um, Will you at some point be going back to civic associations possibly? Because whatever happens sometimes with the meters directly impacts our neighborhoods. Yep. There are sometimes empty meters and full neighborhoods with people that really should be in a meter and right. should not be in the neighborhood. So I would say maybe down the line as you start to gather some, some information, especially when in these neighborhoods you're living pretty close to where the meters are mm -hmm. and there's limited parking in some of those spaces, would that be something you would consider doing? Yeah, absolutely. We have the civic associations on our radar. We haven't strategically targeted them this early in the process based on just prioritization of, of various stakeholders and our outreach time, but, um, but I hear you. And actually, I think one of the more productive 
points will be when we have that existing conditions data because all we have right now are transactions at meters. And they're not, as you can imagine, totally accurate. Not everyone pays the meter. Um, and so I think once we have existing conditions data, we can also start to talk to the community about why we might make some changes where some go up and some go down. And if in an in an instance like you described where there might be people not using the meters but parking somewhere else because they don't want to pay, we might actually see opportunities to reduce price because if we lower the rate to get some meters that are underutilized, better utilized, that would be then, nice. then that could pull people out of the, out of the neighborhood spots. So it's that kind of tailoring that we would, we would try to be looking at. Um, can I ask a couple more questions since I have her here? Um, if you find the part about raising and lowering it can be a little troubling if there are merchants nearby that might rely on some of those meters. So it, that it can't be a blanket statement. There might be a, you know, there might be some merchants near some that seem to be high turnover and. You know, I mean, the, I guess the idea is to raise it to discourage people there, but you may not want to do that. Or, or will merchants be informed if they have a business close by, and especially challenging now, even in the corridor mm -hmm. for, you know, ground level right. businesses, will they be told before or will people have a chance to know before rates are going to go up or down? Um, yes, okay. and it's those retail frontages are the ones that are being hit by our street team today with the hope of engaging them early and getting them aware of the project and aware of what's likely to happen. One of the things we've heard is um, employees who might use metered parking spaces today, are they going to be negatively impacted? Because those retail employees might not make a lot of money, they don't have other parking arrangements, and this might be how they, how they fill the gap. Um, our goal would be to provide lower and higher cost alternatives because you also might not want your employee parking right in front of your business because you want your customers to be there. So having nearby lower prices provides a, a, a feasible, understandable alternative to an employee who has a whole shift to work and they actually want to pay a lower price and they might be willing to walk a couple blocks. So. Um, those types of strategies would be discussed and definitely the community will be engaged in the fall, both prior to the ordinance, because the ordinance discussion with the board also has to be forthright with what, what are the parameters we're trying to access in terms of change. And then as we do cycle through the price changes, we're going to get information from the data mm -hmm. and we're going to get information from the community through um, qualitative data. You know, so we will have feedback forms open. We will have various ways, pop-ups. For instance, we'll be doing some pop-ups this summer. But we'll have ways to touch back to the communities where these changes are happening to see how it's feeling. Okay. And can I ask one more? So if describe what my experience might be as a driver driving around and all the meters are gone where I need to park. And, okay, if I sneak into the neighborhood because there's not enough people enforcing that, that's one thing. But is this system like real time and all of a sudden it just, I can not necessarily be driving in with my handheld <laughs> phone, be going like, gee, where do I go? And bang. Um, but would it be something that we would be able to then get through our car or something to sort of say, hey, there are spaces over here? Is this what the vision is? There are going to be options. I think that the, the data will be available um, in a trip planning sense. So if you know you're going out to dinner with some friends in Clarendon, you can look ahead and you can see the trend data about how busy different blocks are going to be at different times and what the relative availability will be as well as price. 
and you can see the real, what it is in the moment. Um, and I say trends because we're going to have this historic data that just starts accumulating, so we'll know that on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. it's like X. Um, so there'll be trip planning availability there. Um, we'll, we'll only really be communicating availability at the block face level, so you'll probably see a map that's color or pattern coded so that at a glance you can see where there's more and less availability, and you'll also be able to compare price. Um, the extent to which people use it in their car, I think, you know, safety being taken into account, there's, there needs to be that sense of like, oh, well, I have that spot available, but I don't want to pay that rate, so maybe I'll go down. I know that the, the blocks, a couple blocks down, are quite a bit cheaper because they are in this pattern. Again, we're not dynamically changing the price, so it isn't going to be uncertain on a day-to-day -day basis. So if you are going into a, a neighborhood routinely, you'll have a sense of where the lower price spots are and where the, the higher price spots are. All right, well, thank you. That was very helpful, and this is a very fascinating project. Cool. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, any other questions? Thank you for presenting. This has been a long time coming. I remember um, uh, a number of people, even when I was on the Transportation Commission before 2017, um, uh, looking forward to and, and, and pleading for something like this to, 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 to take place. Um, I have a couple questions and a couple comments. Uh, my first question is, um, to what extent are, if, if you are uh, core drilling and embedding specific sensors, does that mean that there is a vision of uh, adopting discreetly named and marked and identified spots like in many parts of the district? Or is that sort of a sense of, um, we're gonna let people park anywhere along X strip and just look at how many of the sensors are, are lit up over, over a time? For purposes of this project, we do have to delineate the spaces. That way we can only, we only have to use one sensor per space. Okay. Um, otherwise, we would have to use more sensors to ensure we caught vehicles that we're trying to park between kind of thing. Um, we will not be, on the staff side, we can see ultimately the occupancy of every space at any given time, but that's not how we'll communicate it for purposes of public right. using it. Um, but we'll have that level of data. Right. It, would, it seems like it would be a, a, um, a bad situation if you had, you know, me and 18 other people all of a sudden saying, oh, spot 118 is full and then having a race to get to that, that spot right outside the restaurant. Um, but but I'm, I just, I'm, I'm to, to be a little bit more specific, that what, I, what I'm wondering about is whether this is pretending a change to, and I don't know what I think about it yet, um, uh, but does this indicate a change towards there are many parts of the district when you when you pay by parkmobile, right? You have to enter both the region that you are in, and mm -hmm. then you have to identify. You have to say, "I my car is in spot 118." And mm. there's a little metal post sticking out of the ground that has 118 in it. You're not. That's not okay. No, no. We we are. Um, we have to design a zone structure that'll be um, a pricing zone structure right. that'll be different than right now. You can imagine there's one zone. Everything's the same price, kind of thing. Um, so we do have to design a zone structure, and we have to design it so it's very understandable to folks. Um, but you'll still be at a meter. So it's really just going to be the same meter experience everyone has today. Okay. We're using the same meter infrastructure, the same park mobile infrastructure. But the zones will be communicating with the meters on the back end. So that if you pull up park mobile, it'll say this space is $2 an hour. And that's because we've sent, that's the, that's the price for that space in that price zone, but your experience will be the same. 
Are you are, are, so so we we could end up in a situation where, you know, a, a quad cab with a six foot bed is going to be sitting on top of two different sensors. Yes. Okay. Okay. So uh, I my my suggestion, such as it is, is that you know well, one of the ways of avoiding that is to. And this is within Parkmobile, right, to consider moving further in the direction as many parts of the district have, where it's not just, you know, I'm going to park in this along this block. It's mm -hmm. that that there are lines and there is a number and I pull up next to the number and, yep. you know, it, it means cars can be a little bit less creative, but it also means that the data is more reliable. So that that's a, a, a one cent suggestion, inflation rate supply. Um, uh, I, I want to share just an, an experience, an anecdote. I'm sure you're hearing from this from the businesses. Um, <clears throat> I remember uh, 15 years ago when I was a server at Restaurant 3, um, some days I would get very lucky and, and I would be parking right outside uh, the, the restaurant. And so when I would, um, at, at midnight at the end of my shift, when I was walking you know, to my car with a lot of cash, um, uh, it was something that even I, at a six and a half foot tall white man, was relatively unafraid, you know, and, and invulnerably 27, was relatively unafraid of, of doing. Um, but uh, it was a much less pleasant experience when I had to walk even to the, um, the, the public parking garage uh, just three or four blocks further. And so I, I think that you are going to get... Um, if you haven't heard it already, you know, where there's going to be pushback and, and concerns expressed, um, not just from the employee, employers, but from the employees who are going to be affected and, and put into a um, perceivably less safe situation uh, by being directed towards, you know, parking that's further away from the spots. Now, I, I also know that that's that there's an extent to which that's a problem to be dealt with as between the employee and the employer. Uh, but but it's something that we should be mindful of. Um, and then the only other comment, Madam Chair, before I yield is that I, I really, I would love to see us moving towards something that is more dynamically priced. Um, I'm mindful of the fact that changes, that, you know, that, that the goal is to be 80% parked, right? Um, but demand doesn't change from quarter to quarter. I mean, I, I guess it does, right? But I'm, again, I'm thinking even just of my experience as a server at Restaurant 3, the real changes in demand are between 4 o'clock p.m. and 8 o'clock p.m. And if the goal is to be, you know, 80% parked and to reduce those trips like Commissioner Bagley was talking about, we have to be willing and able and we have to be getting to a place and this, I know that this is probably, you know, it, one step before the other, right? Um, uh, but I, I, I don't want to let go that the way to get it 80% parked is, is to figure out how we can deal with that 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock swing. And again, yep. I know that that's out of scope, but I... Well, I, it's not out of scope because um, there's a difference between dynamic change, i.e., uh, e, that street just got really busy and now the price went up and it's 40 bucks an hour not going to happen, um, then to be sensitive to time of day. And time of day is totally encompassed in the directive from our That's master great. transportation plan. And That's we are fantastic. looking at that because we want to acknowledge exactly what you were describing. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. Commissioner Lentemi. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, this was very well received in February when it was before Transportation Commission. Um, as you remember, we had a very robust discussion. That went quite well. Um, um, my question, since some have already been answered by my other commission, fellow commissioners, um, well, first of all, I do want to say that 
Like Commissioner Bagley, uh, Clarendon also has some streets that you have way over there. Only stubs are, are metered, the rest of it is residential parking. So there's way too much orange on a number of those streets. Um, I do have a question about, is dynamic pricing currently legal under Virginia law? Because I know there are some constraints to parking, what we can charge for parking based from what Richmond allows. I will have to get back to you on that. My understanding is what we are proposing to do with the pilot is is allowed, but getting more right, dynamic know. than that, I'm not sure. And I think it it hadn't because it wasn't really on the critical path. We hadn't looked into that, but we can we can get back to you on that. Because um, what is the I, I concur with with Commissioner Weir here that dynamic pricing ultimately is the way to go. I think San Francisco has been using that, experimenting with it in a couple of neighborhoods, and supposedly it's been successful so far. Um, so, you know, this is a great first step, and I fully support it. I just hope that we could then use that as to move further toward true dynamic pricing. Uh, there are so many good reasons to do it. Um, our curb space is so underutilized or improperly utilized, and we're just, it, it, it just is all the wrong incentives under the current system. Um, and it's not just fundraising, it's because of use and for so many other reasons, <laughs> anyway, uh, as, you, as you're fully aware of. Um, certainly, as you me as mentioned earlier, letting people know what the pricing is is going to be very key, especially as you move toward dynamic pricing. You have to know real time, what is it going to cost me to be here? And if we're doing time of day also, you know, is it, if it's really cheap at, at noon, but it becomes really expensive at eight, yep. there has to be some way that that can get out, that people are aware of that. Because if you're just coming during the day and you know it costs a quarter of an hour to park there, but in the evening it costs you know $10 an hour, you know, I exaggerate, but still, you, you have to, there has to be some way that people are aware of that. If we have an, the way the airports have, have it online, that these are what these, the costs are for these various places, I think that would be useful. Um, the way the airports manage parking, I think, is a, is a very good uh, model for a lot of this. Um, anyway, um, thank you. This is great. You know, more power to you. <laughs> We'd love to, I'd love to see once it's implemented, you come back and tell us how it's working out. Yep. Thank I you. I look forward to doing it. Commissioner Peterson. Um, two quick questions. One, um, can you share what the range of pricing is? Because I'll be honest, I'm not sure I'm the type of person that would ever look up what the pricing is in advance, and I'm just going to like find the spot that I need that's closest to where I need to go, and then am I going to be shocked at a $10 an hour, or is it going to be like the difference between $3 an hour and four fifty an hour? What's the range going to look like? So we haven't established that yet, and that's in part because we don't have existing conditions data on the range of occupancy and behavior that we have to shift. And so in part, having two years to do these changes is designed to give us some, some time to figure it out a little bit. And one of the things that we might find is there are areas that are not very price sensitive, in which case jacking it up and jacking it up isn't going to marginally change what's going on and it will um, disadvantage households that just can't afford it. And then there'll just be all of this new demand generated basically. So we have to look at that, but we don't know yet. When we establish the ordinance with the board in December, that'll be based on fall existing conditions data and some preliminary proposals for where we think. And it's likely that the board ordinance proposal will have to speak to the range of price that um, we're looking at changing, but we don't, um, we'll engage the community in the fall on that because that'll be necessary leading up to that board action. Thank you. Uh, and the second question I had was just to, I, I think I'm having a hard time understanding the 
parking monitors and how you mentioned like what there will be one per spot, but a lot of the, um, the roads, and you may have already answered this and I just missed it. Um, a lot of the roads aren't individually, you know, there's no lines on the street as Commissioner Weir was saying. So like on Barton, I see Barton is, is on this map. Um, and a lot of that's residential. And if you draw the lines, then fewer people can park is what I understand. Um, so, so, so we are delineating spaces. And what we mean by that is we're painting the lines between the spaces using the um, best practice standards for how big the spaces should be for cars. And there'll be, so there'll be a little bit of variability um, within the range of 18 to 22 feet. In, in that range, a typical car will fit. And um, that will be the outcome during the pilot project. I think the, the, um, the jury's still out on whether delineated spaces are a better or worse experience for parkers. I've definitely heard folks anecdotally excited for delineated spaces because they see the big spaces that are undemarcated to be a weird free-for-all and people do strange things with them and with that space. But um, it's, it is a part of the design, the project design. Okay. Um, whether we need it in the future remains to be seen, but that is part of this. And will part of this pilot be able to assess if you end up with less people being able to park? Like if you compare the results to Park Mobile and if Park Mobile says, actually revenues went down because fewer people are able to fit on the street now, is that going to be able to be something you can consider? It could be, yeah, because we could, in a place that has reliable transaction data, and we can we we can have a sense of that by comparing. We might be able to look backwards at transactions, individual like transactions. Yeah, it, the other thing we'll have is turnover data, and I don't think we're going to see a substantive decrease in the amount of cars that can fit in a in a block when they're um, doing what they're supposed to do. But um, but we will see we will see on a micro and macro scale what the differences are when both we really have a lot of things changing at once. We'll have price, we'll have availability information, and we have the behavior that is changed by the delineation of spaces. And we'll do our best to describe and react to each of those independently if we can. Thank you very much. Yep. Um, Commissioner Guerin. Thank you. Um, this is really interesting, and I'm enjoying hearing my colleagues' questions. I think I want to point out that if we're going to be um, making parking a little more restrictive, a little more expensive, I think something that we'll need to focus on going forward with our site plans is making sure that there's adequate pickup and drop-off. Thanks. And finally, Commissioner Lentelmi. Yeah, I just one quick question. Um, will you be able to correlate the occupied spaces with be them actually being paying for those spaces? Um, not on a space-by-space -space basis, but on a meter basis, we'll be able to see is um, how many transactions and for how much time has been paid for in a given area and how much time is that area occupied. So we'll, we will be able to see if there are places in the community that are more aligned and less aligned with more perhaps parking behavior that's not accompanied by payment behavior. But we won't know on a space basis. We won't know on a car basis. We won't be able to like track down someone and figure out that they have. Yeah, that's paid. okay. I don't think we need that information. Yep. But what you're giving me, what you're saying, you're able to collect. I think will give useful information. So yep. thank you. I agree. Thank you, Ms. McMahon. Thank you for the presentation. Ma Madam Chair. Yes. Excuse me. Sorry. One quick. So if you know that, like, in a particular Hughes street, has a question. and on a particular Commissioner street. Hughes. Mm -hmm. oh. 
Uh, if you can see that on a particular street, 80% um, of the time the occupied spaces are not being paid for, do you then say, like, let's send more parking enforcement on that street at a particular time? That, that's one of the possibilities. As you, as you can imagine, there are constraints to how, there's no money that comes behind this for more enforcement personnel, but it is a, it's, a, um, it's going to inform us, for instance, um, places that are not very compliant, that's one of the words that would be used, a block that's not, that has a lot of, has low compliance with meter payment might also be less price sensitive because those users aren't actually paying. Um, so there's a bit of a chicken and egg there that we'll have to work out, but we don't have unlimited enforcement resources. It is an area where we would want to coordinate. Okay, last but not least, Commissioner Hughes. Commissioner Peter got the primary question I had, which was uh, the enforcement function and the real-time nature of it. Um, but my only uh, other comment just for staff is, uh, I think uh, it would be a shame if we have inelastic demand of pricing in an area that we don't uh, uh, attempt to find what the natural price point is for 80%, and knowing that the uh, increase in resources can be used to better fund uh, certain areas of public transportation that are more available to more people. Thank you, Commissioner Patel. Thank you. Okay, now, thank you. So much, Mr. Thank Mayor. you. Appreciate your time. <laughs> Madam Clerk, do we have another item on the on the agenda? Uh, on this item, no. No, not on this. No, on our, this let's item. call our next item, please. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Um, our second item is uh, ZOA-2023-4 FBC-29 and N-FBC-16. We have Elizabeth King from AED to present this item this evening. This is the Columbia Pike Neighborhood Special Revitalization District Form-Based Code. And Jill Hunger as well. No? <laughs> Thank you so much. Good evening. Good evening, thank you for having me here tonight. My name is Elizabeth King from the Real Estate Development Group in Arlington County Economic Development, and I'm here with Jill Hunger of CPHD. And tonight we're going to talk about the Commercial Indoor Recreation Zoning Ordinance Amendment. This ordinance amendment is a continued application of the county manager's strategy to ensure commercial market resiliency. The county board authorized the advertisement for the indoor recreation ordinance amendment on February 18th, and the quick process was identified as appropriate given the limited impact of this use, identified tenant demand, and experience with such uses in Arlington and beyond, and the positive impact this can have on placemaking goals. So as you can see here, we attended the zoning committee meeting on March 18th, and we anticipate that this amendment will go to the county board on April 22nd. So, so to talk about some trends in indoor recreation, we are seeing evolving restaurant concepts that often blend food and beverage with gaming centers. We're really seeing increased demand for indoor recreation facilities in walkable areas, along with new and emerging activities and technology. Since the pandemic has re resided, receded, receded um, 
We are seeing an increased demand and need for third places to bond and connect over shared interests and activities. Um, we know that filling commercial commercial office space is important, and a recent survey from Gensler on return to office found that 42% of respondents would be willing to come into the office one more day per week if they were offered a new mix of experiences. Um, for indoor recreation, entertainment, and family centers, this market is expected to grow at an annual rate of 12.9%. And according to recent Cushman-Wakefield research, competitive socializing concepts have grown 386% since the beginning of 2021. Um, and just for a few more trends down at the bottom, uh, Gen Z have, uh, really, most of Gen Z have been to a competitive socializing venue in the past and 47% would like to go in the future. Um, and Gen Z and millennials are often leaning more toward uh, experiences. Rather than buying things, they're more interested in buying experiences. And indoor recreation uh, facilities or businesses really offer those experiences. So this ordinance is important because it'll help us fill vacant commercial space and we cannot attract in-demand uh, concepts without this amendment. Uh, this can also help us have placemaking elements that support residents, visitors, and return to office. It can help take pressure off public and private, or help take pressure off public and outdoor recreation spaces. This ordinance amendment can help provide year-round opportunities for exercise and healthy living. It can lower the barriers to entry for these businesses and provide uh, opportunities for entrepreneurship. And it will allow these businesses to open in Arlington, keeping, keeping those dollars in this community. At the zoning committee meeting, we were asked to look into the history of indoor recreation in Arlington. So indoor recreation was first introduced into the county's zoning ordinance in 1950. It was permitted by right in the C2 district. There were very few districts then. And it was permitted under the term amusement enterprises, which was inclusive of billiard or pool halls, bowling alleys, boxing arenas, dance halls, games of skill and science, penny arcades, and shooting galleries, so long as they were in a completely enclosed building. This use has moved through periods of more restriction due to some perceived negative impacts. Um, I don't know why it stopped sharing. Okay, um, so how do we deal with externalities? Most existing commercial and mixed-use buildings do have ample parking, parking nearby, or excellent access to transit. And generally, commercial and mixed-use buildings are designed to minimize the impact. Just want to let you know you have five minutes remaining. Activities, perfect. We're almost done. So here we see the current commercial mixed-use district table. You can see that. Um, there are a lot of indoor, different indoor recreation uses listed out, but they're not all, um, 
regulated in the same way, and some are regulated more strictly than others. And the real kind of trend in zoning is to go uh, more broad, because there's not very much difference in impact between the different indoor recreation uses. So there's no real way, to, no real reason to um, regulate them differently. So what we're proposing in this ordinance amendment is to eliminate the game arcades, billiard pool halls, bowling alleys, uh, go miniature golf courses, skating rinks, tennis and racket and handball courts. Um, here are the current use categories. We are also, from these, we're going to eliminate game arcades, um, skating rinks, and some of the other verbiage. And what we're going to do here is um, encompass everything in the all other indoor recreation line so that all of these similar uses can be regulated in the same way across our commercial mixed use districts. Here you'll see the updates to the use categories. So we're adding um, more updated examples and broadening the term indoor recreation and all these uh, different examples of indoor recreation will fall under that all other indoor recreation line. Um, so our, for our recommendation, we are recommending that the ordinance to amend, reenact, or recodify Article 7, 8, 11, 12, and Sections 3 and 4 of Appendix A of the Columbia Pike Form-Based Code and Part 9 of Appendix B of the Neighborhood Revitalization Form-Based Code of the ordinance uh, be adopted. And that's the end of my presentation, so I'm at time. Thank you so much. Uh, Commissioner Sarley. Thank you for the presentation. Um, this came before the commission, uh, the ZOCO committee, on uh, March 14th, and we had a, a fairly good conversation about it. Commissioner uh, Luntelmi and Commissioner Garen was there. And Commissioner Peterson was also there. Um, so we had a lot of questions and a lot of comments. But um, generally, um, I think the, the, the notion of creating a um, more resilient market is very well received. And other than um, making sure we don't start the Manhattan Project in Arlington, we had no concerns. Thank you. Are there any questions on this item? OK, let me go to Commissioner Sally for a motion. Seriously, nobody had any comments? All right, that's good. Um, all right, um, so the motion, let's see if I make this correctly without Commissioner um, Schroll being here to correct me. Um, I move that the Planning Commission recommend that the County Board amend, reenact, and recodify Articles 7, 8, 11, and 12, Sections 3 and 4 of Appendix A, Columbia Pike Special Revitalization District Form-Based Code and Part 9 of Appendix B, Columbia Pike Neighborhood Special Revitalization District Form-Based Code of the Arlington County Zoning Ordinance as shown in Attachment 1 of the Staff Report to facilitate the following. A, adding a new use table line for all other indoor recreation to the Commercial Mixed-Use Zoning District Use Table. B, adding additional examples of indoor recreation to Article 12 use standards for the recreation use category. C, allowing the establishment of the 
all indoor, all other indoor recreation uses in the RA 4.8, R-C, RA-H, RA-H-3.2, C-1, MU-VS, C-O-1.0, C-O-1.5, C-O-2.5, C-O, C-O-A, C-O, Roslyn, C-O, Crystal City, C-2, C-TH, C-3, C-R, CP-FBC, CPN-FBC, CM, M-1, and M-2 districts to incorporate references to the above-referenced uses in the Arlington County Zoning Ordinance's retail, service, and commercial use categories. Commercial mixed use, C, district's principal use table, industrial, M, district's principal use table, and the Columbia Form-Based Code district's principal use table, principal use, seems, principal use table as set forth herein. D, removing game arcades from entertainment category in the retail, service, and commercial use category. E, removing examples of recreation indoor, both from the commercial mixed use table, industrial zoning districts use table, and Columbia Pike form-based code use tables. <clears throat> F, making additional editorial changes for improved clarity. And G, for other reasons required by public necessity, um, convenience, general welfare, and good zoning practice. Is there a second? Second. Second. Okay. Okay. So um, moved by Commissioner Sarley, seconded by Commissioner Weir. Is there any um, discussion on the motion? No lights are on. So let's vote. Commissioner Bagley? Aye. Commissioner Guerin? Aye. Steinberger? Aye. Weir? Aye. Lynn Telme? Aye. Peterson? Aye. Sarley? Aye. Hughes? Aye. Patel? Aye. The motion carries nine to zero. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening. Madam Clerk, can we call the third item, please? Item number three, as our staff is setting up, will be on the Americana Hotel. We have two parts. 3A is the rezoning, R-E-Z-N 22-00001, and 3B for the site plan, S-P-L-N 22-00004. We have Kevin Lamb, our planning staff, to present this item this evening. Good evening, Mr. Lamb. Good evening, commissioners. All right, so while my presentation loads, um, again, I'm Kevin Lamb with the planning division, and I'm the lead planner for the Americana Hotel uh, redevelopment project. So the subject item before you tonight uh, consists of two parts. The first is a rezoning request, and the second is a, a new site plan request. And there's also an associated item, um, which is a site plan amendment to or for the Bartlett Apartments to modify the required residential parking ratio, as well as permit off-site parking for the Americana project. Mm -hmm. So the site itself is located at 1460 Richmond Highway in the Crystal City neighborhood. Uh, sorry about that. 
Um, so where was I? So it was located in the Crystal City neighborhood uh, between Yeed Street and Richmond Highway. It is currently, or, or the site is currently occupied by the former Americana Hotel building. Um, as you can see in this aerial image, as well as the associated surface parking lot. Um, so as shown in the second image, the hotel building, um, as you can see, fronts the existing elevated portion of Richmond Highway. So the GLUP designation for the site is High Office Department Hotel and is located in the Crystal City Coordinated Redevelopment District. Um, and as I previously mentioned, the applicant is requesting a rezoning from RAH 3.2 to CO Crystal City. So the new site plan uh, consists of a 19-story residential tower uh, built at a LEED Gold certification level. It consists of uh, 639 units and almost uh, 4,000 square feet of ground floor retail for a total density of 8.64 FAR. And the applicant is requesting the following zoning ordinance modifications listed here. So in terms of policy guidance, the site is subject to the Crystal City Sector Plan and is located in the Northwest Gateway District. However, this uh, particular site is not identified for potential redevelopment um, and therefore site-specific improvements such as uh, future public space or transportation improvements were not envisioned as part of this conceptual plan. And also, since the site is located west of Richmond Highway, uh, it is not uh, subject to uh, Crystal City block plan requirements. Um, so as a result, you know, in the absence of a block plan as well as site-specific improvements, um, the site does uh, present as a redevelopment opportunity um, and still subject to other sector plan guidance such as those listed here um, in order to ensure it supports uh, the goals and objectives of the sector plan. So moving on to uh, the analysis, um, one particular design guideline deviation I did want to highlight tonight uh, is related to the minimum uh, frontage requirements, uh, which are in place to maintain a consistent building edge and further uh, promote uh, attractive and walkable uh, streets. So uh, what we're looking at is particularly on Eid Street. So the sector plan recommends that all podiums engaged uh, the uh, recommended building line for a minimum of 80% of the street frontage. And as you can see here on E Street, the proposed podium only engages the RBL for around 50%. However, staff, you know, we do acknowledge the site is long and narrow, and um, which results in a limited amount of actual street frontage on E Street. And given the areas dedicated to the uh, private driveway as well as the pedestrian pathway, you know, even if the podium was extended uh, to its furthest extent, it would only reach around uh, 69%. And then secondly, uh, the sector plan recommends that no portion of the podium facade be located greater than 10 feet from the RBL. Um, in this case, there is an almost 50-foot uh, recessed area that leads to the main residential entrance, and this recessed area 
uh, serves a few different functions. It serves as a waiting area for residents, uh, the retail patio space, as well as access to the pedestrian pathway um, run, running along the north northern side of the site. Um, but as I will get to in the next slide, staff did coordinate with the applicant on uh, important design revisions to further activate the space and improve its relationship with the street in order to meet the intent of the sector plan. So staff uh, identified the opportunity to create a more inviting entry area, given its prominence on the street frontage and to better relate to its various functions, as I mentioned earlier. So working with staff, uh, the applicant did incorporate wood bench seating with integrated planters that wraps around the retail patio, which also creates uh, movement into the recessed area. Other changes include uh, soft lighting in the uh, soffit, the tabletop columns, as well as the benches, and the incorporation of biophilic design elements, um, all of which result in a more uh, welcoming space. So both street frontages are being designed in accordance with two ongoing uh, transportation projects. The first is the county's South East Street Complete Street Project, and the second is VDOT's Route 1 Multimodal Improvement Study, which plans to bring uh, this elevated segment of Richmond Highway to um, an at-grade boulevard. So as you can see in these images here, uh, the project's Richmond Highway frontage uh, has been designed to accommodate both the existing conditions as well as the uh, anticipated VDOT streetscape improvements. So in terms of parking, the Americana Hotel site plan consists of uh, 384 residential parking spaces. Just for, want to give you a three-minute warning. Great, thank you. For a um, parking ratio of 0.6 spaces per unit, um, parking is proposed to be located in the underground parking garage with 178 spaces. And then the uh, site plan will utilize uh, 600 spaces off-site in the Bartlett Apartments garage. So both the um, reduced residential parking ratio as well as the, the use of off-site parking are both um, supported by the residential parking guidelines. So the applicant will uh, provide the following commitments for um, the additional 3.85 FAR in density. So this includes contributions to AHIF and for offsite uh, transportation and public space improvements in Crystal City. The applicant will also be granting a future public access easement for the pathway, mm -hmm. as well as achieving a lead gold certification and meeting the Green Building Incentive Program criteria at the 0.25 FAR level. So the review process for this project began last June with an LRPC meeting uh, there was the online engagement opportunity in October, followed by two SPRC meetings, which covered the following topics. And then lastly, uh, the site plan you know, is consistent with the GLUP, the zoning ordinance, and the sector plan guidance, and advances several key county goals and policies. So first, the project will provide the base affordable housing contribution, as well as provide an additional AHIP contribution, which could be leveraged at the nearby 
crystal houses to help create um, 93 committed affordable units for a period of 99 years. In addition, it will include 33 on-site family-sized units. The project will provide contributions for off-site transportation improvements in Crystal City, such as um, the previously mentioned South Eighth Street Complete Street project, as well as the 18th Street Realignment project, both of which will create a safer and more accessible environment for all street users. The applicant will provide contributions toward uh, planning and implementation of public space improvements in Crystal City, such as the planned Metro Market Square and Center Park. Um, the project will be built at elite gold certification level and also meet the green building and center program criteria. And then lastly, the project is in general conformance with uh, the sector plan design guidelines. So therefore, staff uh, recommend adoption of the attached ordinances listed here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, do we have an applicant presentation? Hello. <laughs> Good evening. Good you evening. How are you? Perfect. All right. Let's Good get wishes. right into it. Hi, everyone. My name is Carolina Pazdrazdis, and I'm a senior development analyst at JBG Smith. Tonight, I'll be sharing a brief overview of the Maricana site project. And as a reminder for those watching at home, this presentation and recording will be available on the county's website. Tonight, I will share an overview of the main topics. Oh, there we go. Main topics that have been discussed during the entitlement and community engagement process, including the site design, height, form, and architecture, open space and landscaping, sustainability, transportation, community benefits, and others related to this project. Starting off with a brief project overview. For site context, our project is located between South Eid Street on the west and Route 1 on the east, and is directly across from Amazon's Metz Park. Here are some additional images of the current condition of South Eid Street looking both south and north down the street. The picture on the top right reflects the southwest corner of the site and includes the existing curb cut, and the photo below reflects the condition of the northwest corner. The aerial plan here reflects the current project, which is approximately 527,000 residential square feet and 3,885 retail square feet, programmed with 639 units and 188 on-site residential and visitor parking spaces. Now I'll share some detail regarding the design and architecture related to the project. The massing of the building was initially influenced by the site constraints, such as the tower setbacks with the neighboring embassy suites to the north and the power mount apartments to the south. And then through the design process, we looked to further break down the north and south facades since they are long due to the proportion of the site. Additionally, the design also added articulation to the east and west facades, allowing for a cohesive design and creating for an elegant and slender proportion on the street frontages. The following plan reflects the current ground floor for the building, and as indicated by the key, we have retail fronting South Sea Street in yellow, the lobby in green, residential units in blue, and the amenity space in red. We have all of our vehicular and loading activity focused on the south side of the building, and an amenity space that will be programmed for fitness on the east side of the building. 
Note, north of the building, we are including a pedestrian pathway. And when Route 1 is lowered to grade, the pathway will be available to serve as an east-west connection for South Eads Street and Route 1. This rendering, looking south down South Eads Street, features a view of the balconies on the north side of the building. Over 40% of the units include balconies, which use a metal rail that was inspired by the design of the previous... Sorry, one sec. There we go. Um, inspired by the design of the previous Americana Hotel on the site. Additionally, the current design includes some of the feedback we received during the community engagement and entitlement process, such as the addition of the pedestrian pathway, increased street frontages and tower setbacks, and changes to help define the podium expression. Moving on, this rendering focuses on the residential entrance underneath the canopy element we have coined as the tabletop, designed to help land the building and stand out at a pedestrian scale. We've incorporated various biophilic elements throughout the entitlement process, such as planters and benches that will use natural materials and create a more inviting pedestrian experience that will frame the residential entryway and the outdoor retail patio and further activate South Eads Street. Here's an additional rendering looking out from the residential entryway, which as shown in the previous picture creates an inviting condition with the outdoor retail seating activating the street. For the tabletop, the cast panel cladding material spaced one and a half feet apart for the fins helps ground the tabletop, while the use of metal panel cladded materials responds to something lighter above and creates the effect of an outdoor room as light casts through the fins while also controlling the flow of pedestrian traffic towards South Eads Street. This building was designed with no backside, as all the facades are visible, so high-quality materials and details are used throughout. This rendering of Route 1 in the future condition showcases the contrasting vertical and horizontal expressions that are featured on both of the street frontages and also pay homage to the Americana Hotel. As mentioned from the previous South Eads Street view, this rendering also reflects the east-west connection that we incorporated to the site design based off community feedback as well as the five-foot and eight-foot tower setbacks per staff's comments. Additionally, through the feedback from the online engagement process, we revised the design to have a more defined podium expression with amenity facing Route 1 instead of the residential units to help further activate the street and provide an entrance to the east side of the building that can be utilized when Route 1 comes to grade. Here's the same rendering, oh, here's the same rendering under today's existing conditions of Route 1. <laughs> Okay, um, moving on now, I'll provide a quick overview of the landscaping elements we have incorporated into the project. The landscape plan includes multiple levels of biophilic elements across the project. On the ground level, we're using integrated seating and landscaping to help activate South Eads Street, the residential entry, and the pedestrian connection to the north of the building for the public realm. For the residents of the project, we've included an outdoor deck surrounded by canopy trees that is connected to the fitness center, a second floor planted terrace to connect the co-working space on South Eads Street to the outdoors, and two terraces on the roof, both on the west and the east side of the building, to provide open air amenity and green space and contribute to the project's tree canopy coverage. Looking at the South Eads Street facade, through the SPRC process, we integrated additional planters on the second floor amenity space to soften the edge and provide a more biophilic elements from the street view. Also, as mentioned previously, we have incorporated planters and natural materials to frame the residential entry and make it more inviting for pedestrian traffic. 
And finally, as reflected in this night view of the southwest corner, you'll note the additional green screens in between the private units that we integrated through the community engagement process to bring additional greenery to the southern facade. Next, I'll provide a brief overview of the sustainability objectives for this project. The project is seeking LEED Gold certification and through the entitlement process has refined the design to meet the criteria of the GBI program, which includes a design performing at least 20% better by energy performance over a base building and incorporates 5% level two EV charging stations day one while being 15% EV ready for future demand and also uses bird friendly glass in the greatest collision threat areas of the facade. As a part of JBG Smith's commitment to sustainability, we've already achieved carbon neutrality across our 16.8 million square foot operating portfolio and therefore intend to invest in offsite renewables in perpetuity for this project. Our latest energy study includes a better building envelope, LED lighting, high efficiency water source heat pumps, Energy Star appliances and water sense labeled fixtures that will make a significant impact to the project's sustainability objectives. Next, I'll share some quick highlights of the discussion at Transportation Commission on March 30th. Starting off with an overview, the site has access to excellent public transportation with two metro stations less than a 10 minute walk away and 10 bus routes located within a quarter of a mile, as well as offering great pedestrian and bicycle pathways. As discussed at Transportation Commission, the project is currently designed to have a 0.6 parking ratio with half of the spaces below grade and on site and the other half located down the street at the Bartlett, which is approximately a three minute walk from the project. Okay, to just a little under two minutes. Sounds good. This rendering reflects the county's planned 12th to 15th street improvements for South Eads Street that include a seven foot pickup and drop off zone outside of the adjacent traffic lanes. The rendering here reflects the curb cut will have for all of our vehicular traffic, including the residential and visitor parking, package drop-off, residential and retail loading, and bicycle circulation to a residential entry that'll lead you directly to the elevators for the lower levels. And lastly, I will provide a quick overview of the community benefits related to the project. For the bonus density for the Maricana site project, the proffer package includes making a cash contribution of $6.1 million to open space intended to fund Metro Market Square, as well as making a contribution for the South Eads Street Improvement Project and providing public access to the east-west pedestrian pathway that will connect South Eads Street and Route 1. Finally, per staff's request, we will also be making a $7.5 million contribution to affordable housing intended to fund over 80 units at the Crystal Houses redevelopment located approximately 0.3 miles from the site, in addition to the base contribution of $2.1 million. As mentioned in the previous slides, JBG Smith intends to participate in the GBI program for this project. <coughs> Thank you all for your time this evening, and we look forward to your feedback as we open up for questions and discussion. Thank you so much. Um, Madam Clerk, we have one speaker. Actually, earlier we said we did not have any, but we have one speaker from C2E2. Yes, Mrs. Cynthia Lewin, please. Is that better? Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak, and I want to thank Commissioner Weir, who was the SPRC chair for this project. This is a difficult conversation because this applicant has worked hard, as you've heard, 
They've done lead gold. They're participating in the GBI, uh, the Green Building Incentive Program. And at the request, I'm here on behalf of the Climate Change, Energy, and Environment Commission. And at our request, the team met with the Building Decarbonization Coalition, which is a nonprofit organization that, as its name suggests, tries to help developers figure out how to decarbonize their buildings. So they've worked in good faith to do all that. But here we are there. The project still is using significant fossil fuels. And I think you're all familiar with the, uh, the analysis, the chart, and the criteria that C2E2 uses for projects. And uh, you know we have good news and bad news. The score that we are giving is a 64%. 64 is a terrible score. But it's one of the best scores we've given. Uh, you know, we are, uh, Arlington County is not going to be able to meet its commitments to climate change, uh, to carbon neutrality, and to its CEP program, to sustainability goals, if we continue to approve buildings like this. Um, Arlington is hosting so much development. The eyes of the country are on us with the HQ2. It would be wonderful if we could be a national model and lead the way toward an all-electric future. Uh, you know, we can argue whether the technology is out there. There are buildings similar to this that in other parts of the country are finding a way to be all-electric. Ours are not. Constraints are different. But I hope that we can all work together to find a way to that all-electric future. So thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Commissioner Lynn, tell me this matter came to transportation. Did you want to add anything? Yes, uh, thank you. This was heard at the Transportation Commission um, last week. Um, our discussion involved, not surprisingly, around um, the uh, completion of the protected bike lane on Eads Street, the east-west connector, uh, which was very well received. Um, not surprising, we always look for a lower parking ratio than what is here, but we do look like the um, fact that it is being, some of the parking is being shared uh, across the street. Um, given how overparked Crystal City is, it's good to be able to use that, that, um, that excess parking capacity. Uh, so we think that's a win-win all around. Um, the Transportation Commission did make um, one modification. Uh, by the way, it did recommend unanimously uh, that this go forward. It's considered to be a very good project. Um, the Transportation Commission also added um, that it recommended the county board would approve the site with a lower parking ratio than what is proposed solely to give the applicant flexibility between now and construction to reduce the number of parking spaces further with, uh, without seeking further approval. Um, if in the future the, uh, app, this project would like to shrink, let's say make its bike room larger and shrink the um, a number of parking spaces and give it over to bikes, they'd have to get a minor site plan amendment. We'd like to make that really easy to happen and don't see a need to come back for a site plan amendment. Uh, we'd like to have that be approved up front. So that was the basis for the motion, which was also passed unanimously. I will be making a similar motion tonight later on. Thank you. Commissioner Weir. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I have circulated my report. Uh, the the um, short version of it for those of you who uh, um, have not had the opportunity to review it in the tremendous amount of time between this afternoon and now. Uh, my apologies for that. Um, the, the gist of it is that there this is a, this is a project that um, arrived uh, in a very good spot 
um, and and now comes to us uh, in an even better spot. Um, there are uh, I, I would I would not I, I would say that there are not any major or material items or issues that are unresolved for our discussion. There are a few things at the margin. I understand, I, I expect that, that, you know, that there might be one among us or, or more who, who um, have some thoughts on, on um, the, the uh, height to which the bird-friendly glass is being proposed to be installed. Um, but but I, I, I raise that in the context not of fingering that as a, um, as a problem with this issue per se, but I, but I think maybe a, with this proposal per se, but I, I think a, a, you know something that gets more towards a, an Arlington County policy issue, um, which isn't to I, I don't mean to suggest that that uh, well I don't let, I'll stop getting ahead of ourselves. Um, uh, uh, I think that one of the um, remaining issues to be worked out, although I, I may prove to be the only person who's still animated by this, is um, the design and materiality of the tabletop, um, which I think is a, a tentpole feature for this project. Uh, and, and, um, and during the SPRC meetings, uh, um, uh, there was a, uh, someone, me, who flagged a recent bad example or a bad experience with uh, uh, something that was a really prominent and well-designed project that, at, at the entitlement stage, namely the, the Boston pedestrian bridge that ended up being a very different experience for many of the people who interact with it uh, uh, during the day, uh, on, any given, on any given day. Um, you know, the other, I think, major issue, the, the other issue that I think took up most of the real estate in the participants' heads, uh, minds, was the east-west pedestrian uh, connection, um, but I, I also believe that that has um, been pretty thoroughly fleshed out and and discussed. It, you know, it comes to us as a uh, eight-foot clear width um, with uh, uh, um, representations from the applicant that there will be a, uh, a public use easement um, uh, at such time as or should uh, Richmond Highway um, be regraded. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense for there to be a public use easement presently because from whence would people access the eastern portion of it. Um, I think that that's all I want to call out from the dais. Uh, the only, the, you know, beyond approaching topics of discussion using the general rubric that we use for SPRC projects, uh, um, with the potential caveat of those two items that I, that I raised, uh, bird-friendly glass specifically and the tabletop feature, I don't have um, any lingering topics uh, to, to suggest to the commission, uh, and I intend to advance the county manager recommended motion without amendment, um, uh, at least for the purpose of getting us started. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to go to Commissioner Hughes, who has a question. And then followed by Commissioner Geer. Uh, thanks, Commissioner Patel. Uh, I had a question for staff on the 33 family units that was mentioned in their presentation. Would they mind putting the slides up and explaining to me what those 33 family units are? So the 33 uh, family size units are, you know, essentially uh, three bedroom units um, provided on site. So they will be market um, rather than affordable. But um, the family size units kind of just means it's going to be uh, three bedrooms. And so is that market rate affordable at 
what level of affordability do we know, Stacks? They, they, they won't be affordable. They will be market. So they're above 120 AMI, correct? Correct. I assume that whatever the market rent will be, um, those will be rented at, the, at those prices. Which is normally significantly above 120 AMI. Um, I think we do ourselves a disservice and our AHMP a little bit of a disservice. And I understand the AHMP covers all incomes, um, but we tend to focus our conversation on two types of affordable housing. One is the 60% below, it, which we define as affordable, and then the 80 to 120, which is the middle income AMI. So uh, I'd recommend staff not go forward with that presentation and stick with the presentation that the applicant put forward, which was the base contribution, um, which as you point out is cash on site or nearby um, with an additional cash contribution and which the applicant almost clearly stated, which nearly every applicant was just there. Almost every applicant that's not a nonprofit does a pure cash. Okay, thank you. Commissioner Guerin. Well, I assume you're asking me because I'd like to speak to the bird friendly glass, but I do have a question about the benefits given that so much of these are um, sort of cash contributions, and this is probably for Mr. Schreiber as much as anyone. What's the timing of those when they're all cash contributions? So per the condition language, the, um, the AHIF contribution, um, sorry. I don't actually need a date. I'm just wondering, do we get all of that at certificate occupancy or is it sooner? Are they staggered with other milestones? Yes, let me just double check the timing. Thank right, you, Mr. so Lynn. it is tied to um, prior to issuance of the Shallon Core um, uh, certificate of occupancy. All of them. The the AHIF contribution. And then it looked like there was a contribution. Um, there were there were several several cash contributions. Right. So the other so in terms of transportation that yeah. is tied to the uh, first partial CO of tenant occupancy, okay. and then um, the uh, public open space is uh, going to be phased. So the first uh, installment is tied to the first uh, permit above grade, and then the second installment is also the first partial CO of tenant occupancy. So in practice, will we be seeing some of these in place by the time the building is occupied? So just for the record, I'm Aaron Schreiber with the Planning Division. And, and as Mr. Lamb pointed out, um, with this um, project, there are some very large uh, monetary contributions. They do come in at different times. Um, what I would say is by the time this project is constructed, I wouldn't necessarily um, expect all of the improvements to which these monies are attributed to to be completed by that time. I think that they will be 
um, funded. Some of them may be under construction, such as the um, open space improvement around the Metro Market Square um, or other open space improvements, such as funding for Center Park. I wouldn't expect Center Park to be completed, but you may see some of the design work underway. Uh, similarly, with a very large contribution for the affordable housing component, um, that those are monies that we would anticipate using at Crystal Houses just because we have the ability to leverage that uh, to create about 93 um, committed CAFs. Um, again, will, will that building or those buildings at Crystal Houses be completed by this time? Probably not, um, but I would expect them to at least be under construction by then. Yeah, thank you very much, Mr. Schreiber, Mr. Lamb. Um, I know that JBG Smith has in the past been very cognizant of how important it is to build a thriving community um, with so much redevelopment in that neighborhood. So I guess I just want to be on the record as saying, when I think we have this trade-off with a big cash contribution, I want to make sure that we're not putting off all of those benefits until some later stage. Um, as to the bird-friendly glass, can you clarify, is this from zero to 36 feet or from eight to 36 feet? I saw nodding, but I don't know what that means. That is correct, eight to 36 feet. Okay, so again, here I wanna go on the record. I think it's really important that you find a way to go from zero to 36 feet. Most of the bird collisions, the reason why we have the bird-friendly glass, happen where there's vegetation, where the birds are in the vegetation and they get confused by the glass and then they fly into it. I know from other conversations with your teams that you do not want to be picking up dead birds in the morning. And yet, in fact, that's what most big buildings are facing. And this whole bird-friendly movement in our area, in our region, was started by Ann Lewis, who's an architect in the district, who said, we hated that we were creating these buildings, and this is what the, out the outcome was. Every morning, we go around and we pick up these dead birds before everybody sees them. So it's really important, the 8 to 36 feet. If you then had a green roof at a higher level, you'd want to have bird-friendly glass at that level, too. So the zero to 36 feet, the zero to eight feet is actually probably some of the most important. Zero to 36 feet should be a minimum. You know, New York City would have you do zero to 100. So we're definitely going in that direction. But um, I don't know if you have the ability to make those changes now. I think you'll probably, over time, um, perhaps hope that you had. So I want to encourage that at this point. Thanks for the opportunity to raise this. Thank you. Any Commissioner? On, on the substance, Commissioner Gear and, and, and to the applicant, I agree, especially with zero to eight. I think where you're, I suspect part of where we are at, and I'm happy to be, you know, proven wrong if it, if it gives, if it opens an opportunity to do better. But I suspect that where we, where we are at is that we have county guideposts, right, and that say, you know, we can get you know, X bonus density if we do 8 to 36, and that those guideposts probably need to be revisited uh, um, because those are the numbers that applicants are going to are going to hang their that's the code, those numbers are the code hook that applicants are going to hang their their hat on. Um, and you know, I think Commissioner Peterson even during the SPRC had pulled up a resource that suggested some disparity between where we are at. Some dis uh, and, there's and no doubt about that, that there's some disparity yeah. between what we're requiring and what is actually best practice. Yeah, and, and so I, I, you know, Mr. Schreiber and Mr. Lamb, I, I think that a suggested takeaway is that, that these are some things that might be revisited on the staff and planning side um, uh, as much as Commissioner Geeran suggested to the applicant that there might be a way to 
save your tenants some heartache um, in that those first eight feet. Okay. Any other questions? Wonderful, Commissioner. You, Commissioner Sir, Are we only limited to a certain top? No. Nope. No. Nope. Then. Yes. Thank you. Um, I did want to specifically call out that I was pleased to see that the applicant is allowing um, historic preservation staff to survey the site for any artifacts. I think that's an important coming from the prior member of the ATLRB. I think that's an, something I was very pleased to see. Um, I'm not sure what will be found, but hopefully something interesting. Um, and since I'm already talking, I, I will say that while I'm very pleased to see the large dollars associated with some of the cash contributions being made, um, I, you know, I, I know this was discussed at SPRC, but um, you know, having on-site affordable units is something that you know I think we really do express a strong desire to see on all projects. Your project is lovely, but it's no different in that regard. We would still like to see on-site affordable housing wherever we can. Um, so I did want to kind of reemphasize that. Thank you. I'm just going to um, recognize myself for a minute and associate with Commissioner Steinberger's um, comments. Every project needs to have on-site affordable housing, period. Every single project. Commissioner Ware. I, mean, I guess my question, th this isn't the... Uh... This isn't the issue that I wanted to be recognized for, but my question to you, Commissioner, Madam Chair, and, and Commissioner Steinberger, is, is um, like at, 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 what, at what cost are we willing as a, as a, as a county to, to pay for that? Because I think the point that the applicant raises and the staff raises is that you know we we could we could ask um, you know we, we could insist on on-site caps and maybe get 30 units, but the opportunity cost is the 90 or so units that the same amount of, of resources could could get us at, at Crystal Houses. And I, I'm not, I'm, that's not a leading question. I don't, I, I, I can think of arguments either way. I, I just, you know, don't, I don't know what, where I would land if I were the one that have to make that decision. Well, speaking on behalf of myself and Commissioner Steinberger now, um, at what cost are we not willing to ensure that every single property in Arlington County is developed with on-site affordable housing. At what point are we not, as a community, willing to take that up or that cost? If we hold ourselves out to be a welcoming, thriving, inclusive community, then we need to stand by that. And that means we have to have affordable housing, affordable options at every single project. Commissioner Steinberger, Commissioner Bagley, Commissioner Guerin. Adding to that, I think for me personally, and I align myself with um, the chair's comments, I think for me personally where I see I'm not necessarily expecting to get, you know, the 30 units versus 90 units, but what I do like to see is some amount of affordable units on any site, and that could be, depending on the project, three units. And it doesn't have to be all of the, you know, and what that breakdown looks like of a cash contribution and then some affordable on-site, I think that it's important to make sure that we have a range of locations throughout the country where we have affordable units and that we're not simply, you know, I understand the bang for your buck argument. I, that, I, I get that. <laughs> but I think it's also important that we, you know, in, in terms of geographically across the county, that we be, have options for that and that we be putting units where people are going to be, live, you know, working and, you know, contributing to the community across the board. And I think that's an important thing to consider. So that's what I wanted to add. 
to the chair's comments. I don't remember who she called on next, but <laughs> I called on I called on Commissioner um, Bagley, then Garen, then then uh, Commissioner Hughes. Um, yeah, I would just like to align myself with having affordable housing on all the projects, and we mentioned this in the SPRC. Um, and I honestly, personally believe that the county does not ask enough of developers. I think developers will still be here. There seems to be some fear. If we ask for too much, they'll go away. They're not going to go away. There's too much money to be made here. So if we really want to be inclusive, if you really want to be a project that stands out, you know, come back with a little bit more affordable housing. I do have another question during the SPRC. I asked uh, if you would please meet with um, the uh, uh, Disabilities uh, group. Did you meet with them uh, just so that you could run things by them? Because it's not really about ADA. It's more about universal compliance, which they are more experts on than we were. So have you done that? We did, and it was an extremely helpful conversation. It informed Great. some of our design, and it was okay. Uh, we actually appreciated it because a lot thank of you. it we didn't know. Okay. Um, thank you, Madam Chair. I want to associate myself with Commissioner Weir. Um, I am all for affordable housing. In a prior life, I was a housing coordinator, so I believe in this. But I also do acknowledge this does come at a cost. Uh, when we used to require inclusionary units, I think what we saw was a comparable rise in everybody else's rents in the building. So I think we have to acknowledge that there's a way that this happens. And yes, if we make this a priority, we find a way to, to uh, implement it. But I do think we need to look at more creative ways to provide housing opportunities. I have actually spoken with the applicant's attorney about this, um, the idea of location-efficient mortgages, energy-efficient mortgages, first-time homebuyer programs. I think there's a, there are a lot of ways that we could be using our relatively unencumbered AHIF funds to try to address some of those needs. So very eager to have a broader conversation about this issue. Commissioner Hughes. Uh, thanks, Commissioner Patel. Uh, I first want to associate myself, <laughs> Commissioner Patel, Commissioner Steinberger, you both form my heart. Uh, six years ago, seven years ago, I began the policy of voting no for all types of proposals like this uh, that came forward with a strictly cash contribution or I'll call it cash contribution in disguise, where the base contribution is always a cash contribution. Um, however, uh, it's important to note, and I do think it's worth saying, Commissioner uh, Weir is correct, the bang for the buck. When I began that process, the bang for the buck argument, the biggest bang for our AHIP buck always comes pretty much from developing a West Pike aged property into a new property uh, in an area of concentrated poverty pursuant to HUD and an area where the free and reduced lunch is over 90 to 80 percent, depending on the year on the elementary school. I am comfortable supporting this proposal and the cash contribution because staff identifies the location, which is basically across the street from the Americana Hotel. So I think we are correct to ask the question, where does a slippery slope lead to? And it leads to the biggest bang for our buck. And that is not the right thing for our community. But if we know it's across the street, I'm willing to take that bang for that buck. And so I'm accepting of this proposal as is. Thank you, Commissioner Patel. Thank you. I think our final question is with, from Commissioner Weir. Um, on a different topic, I, I'm going to ask, I think, uh, I, Mr. Lamb, maybe this is for you. Uh, um, Mr. Whitmer, uh, maybe for you, uh, but it's the one that you knew coming with, about um, how do we make sure that uh, should there be 
issues at the um, CO and permitting stage uh, with the materiality and or engineering of the tabletop um, that we are not put into a situation where the experience is uh, a, a 180 from the one that we see at the entitling stage. Um, and I know that at SPRC there was some talk about potential condition language or language about what would be a minor or major site plan and, and I just want to ask what if anything has been fleshed out since then. Sure, I can I can take a first stab, and then Mr. Lamb may have some comments as well. Um, I think the first thing to point out is that the tabletop has been an integral part of the design of this project since day one. I think some of the other um, architectural features you referenced maybe were not integral parts of the project from day one, and that that may contribute to some of what we ended up seeing in, in practice uh, that, that may have differed from the plans. Um, Post-approval, after the entitlement, uh, should the county board approve this, there is an extended process by which plans are further refined through administrative processes and additional review. A final uh, architecture and materials plan will be submitted and reviewed by the county staff. And I can tell you from personal experience that they look very closely at the renderings that were provided as part of the entitlement to ensure that what is submitted in the more detailed plan matches uh, the, the spirit of those initial renderings from the entitlement. If they do not, for, for whatever reason, they're, they're deemed not to match that. Um, there are several processes that may be undertaken in order to um, change those underlying uh, approvals, uh, whether that would be an administrative change or a minor site plan amendment or even a major site plan amendment that would come back to the county board for approval. So there are a significant number of safeguards in place to ensure that what we're showing today is reflected in what's ultimately built. Um, are there changes? Sometimes there are, but um, in my experience, staff does a very good job of, of seeing where a change is material versus not, no pun intended. A material change would need to come back to get um, an amendment. And I'm sure Mr. Lamb or Mr. Shriver may have some comments on that as well. Yeah, and to kind of build off that, um, you know, the whole intent of that condition language is to ensure um, whatever gets built is consistent with the approved plans in terms of, you know, the building, massing, the materiality, the overall architecture. Um, so, you know, as part of that condition, um, in, in, if there are any changes, that is subject to staff review, either through an admin change or site plan amendment. So I, I would just um, thank you, Mr. Whitmore, for the good pun. Um, uh, and uh, Mr. Lamb and Mr. Schreiber and your colleagues, I just would hope that you would be particularly conservative. Uh, should there be should there be needed changes, uh, I would just ask that you be particularly conservative. I think that the sense of the members of the SPRC was that the importance of the tabletop to the project and the importance of it being right um, was of similar value and weight to the importance that. Uh, the applicant's attorney has just articulated uh, it, that it represents to the applicant and then the architecture as well. So I, I just, um, without without burdening a project, you know, without slowing things down appreciably, uh, I, I just would ask you to be both judicious and conservative uh, should there need to be changes there. So that's all. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Commissioner. Do you have a motion? I do. Um, let me find the appropriate. Right. Do you no. have it, Commissioner Peterson? No, you've got a question from Commissioner Peterson. Oh, go ahead, Commissioner Peterson. I, I just had a question for Mr. Schreiber and Mr. Lamb, maybe, um, just about C2E2's 
bigger picture question about, you know, this building project is pretty good. Um, it scored, I think you said, a 62%. And yet this in no way is helping us reach our community energy plan goals. And so I guess bigger picture question for the future, you know, what do we need to be doing? Like, I, what do we need to do to reach these goals um, if we set this community energy plan and project after project isn't achieving it? Like, what is what are we saying um, about our, you know, big picture planning goals? Sure. So I can I can answer that. And so what what you're seeing with each of these projects is that they are. Uh, consent of um, they are consistent with the um, the board's adopted green building incentive based policy and and that's what it is that is a tool that the board adopted as an implementation um, uh, metric that's used to help further the goals of the CEP um, it is incentive based those are what our allowances are in Virginia and it is scaled and so in this case uh, the applicant is participating, and it is a it is an aggressive program. It is not lead based. That is one component from the baseline. Uh, there's many other things that they need to do, uh, and they are participating at the at what is the lowest level. But it does return a 0.25 FAR bonus, and that's what the board's adopted policy is. Um, I do know that our Department of Environmental Services will be uh, commencing a review of the green building incentive policy. When it was last adopted, that was a commitment they made to the board to revisit that in 2023. Uh, that effort is underway. We and the planning division are taking an active role in that. So um, I do not know what the um, conclusion of that will be. Is it looking at just some of the baseline elements? Is it looking at changing some of the FAR credits? Um, I, I would assume that all of those things are on the table. I think we, we continue to hear one of the concerns, which is a baseline commitment. Um, about the bird-friendly glass and about the uh, vertical dimensions of it, that maybe is something that is considered. I think all of these things that we're hearing are, are just things that we can back and share with our colleagues, and then ultimately it's up to the board to make a decision on how they want to revise that program. But I would say until then, these projects are consistent with the board's adopted policy on that effort. Okay, thank you. Commissioner Weir. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, I move that the Planning Commission... Um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do both aspects in one motion. Uh, I move that the Planning Commission recommend uh, one that the County Board adopt the attached ordinance to rezone the property known as 1460 Richmond Highway. Um, actually, uh, Madam Chair, before I let me just ask a, a um, let me stop and ask a ministerial question. Uh, the website uses 1400. Um, this motion uses 1460. Is there an issue if we go if if, if the motion from the commission uses the the 1460 or or is that the one that you want us to use so 1460 is the one because okay. um, when we looked at the real estate uh, assessors page uh, the address associated with the RPC was 1460 okay so that that's one we don't want to get wrong um, thank you for indulging me uh, so I, I move that the Planning Commission uh, recommend that the County Board one adopt the attached uh, ordinance to rezone the property known as 1460 Richmond Highway RPC 35-001-002 uh, and uh, RPC 35001-003 uh, from RAH 3.2 multiple family dwelling and hotel district to CO Crystal City mixed use Crystal City district uh, and two 
uh, adopt the attached ordinance for SPLN 22-00004, aka Site Plan 466, to permit the construction of up to approximately 8.64 FAR total density, including approximately 527,128 square feet of residential floor area comprising 639 residential units and 3,885 square feet of retail floor area with modifications for additional density, reduced residential and retail parking ratios, required loading spaces, density exclusions, and other modifications necessary to achieve the proposed development subject to the conditions of the attached ordinance. Is there a second? I'll second it. <clears throat> okay, motion by uh, Commissioner Weir, seconded by Commissioner Lentelmi. Is there any discussion? Could I make an amended amendment? Please. Um, I move that the Planning Commission um, make the following amendment to the motion, uh, which would read, furthermore, the Planning Commission recommends that the County Board approve this site with a lower parking ratio than what is proposed to give the applicant flexibility um, at any time to reduce the number of parking spaces without seeking further approval. Is there a second? Second. Seconded by Commissioner Weir. Is there any discussion? I'd like to speak to the motion. Um, I'm doing this because, partly because the way this this uh, site is being developed, they're, they're, for example, their um, bike room is in the parking garage. Um, because of the, ch the rapid changing of bicycles, uh, moving toward electric bicycles, cargo bicycles, I could foresee fairly close in the future that they'll be needing just physically more room, even for the same amount of bikes, in addition to putting in um, the, um, the charging uh, requirements for electric bikes, which also may mean additional transformers uh, capacity. That would easily be accommodated within the garage by taking up one, two, or however many spots. But because you take spots, that means it reduces the ratio, which means you'd have to come back for a minor site plan amendment. Um, this seems to me that it would be a fairly, for this site, it would make sense to allow them to have a lower parking ratio from the start to allow them to make those changes without having to come back here. It fits with our sustainability goals. It would make the, the uh, building more marketable. Um, all around, I think it's a win-win. Thank you. Thank you. Um, any question? Oh, Commissioner Peterson. Um, I just had a question. Would it make sense to amend this to add the caveat that we can lower the ratio if it is for making space for bikes so they couldn't just do it for any old reason. Actually, I wouldn't mind them doing it for any reason <laughs> because if we reduce our parking ratio, that means we're not having cars. So thank you. Okay, are we ready to vote? Yes? Are we okay. voting on, on the motion to amend? This is just the motion just to amend. Just the motion to amend. Okay. Okay. Ready? Yeah. All right. Commissioner Bagley. Aye. Commissioner Guerin. Aye. Steinberger. Abstain. Um, Weir? Aye. Lynn Tell me? Aye. Peterson? Aye. Farley? Aye. Hughes? Aye. Um, Patel is going to abstain as well. The motion carries seven to two. Or seven. Seven to nothing. Zero. <laughs> okay, how about I don't ever do that again. <laughs> All right. Um, how about the let's let's um, have a vote on the can motion I say, now. Can I say one thing first? I'm sorry. I I I, I in my report, 
I forgot to thank Mr. Lamb and the, and the applicants for the great work that they've done during the process, and they should be recognized accordingly. Okay. Um, the <laughs> we have an over and under. No, just kidding. <laughs> Commissioner Weirs, single-handedly. Uh, uh, now the motion, we're going to vote on the motion as amended. Commissioner Bagley. Aye. Aaron. Aye. Steinberger. Aye. Weir. Aye. Lynn Tell me. Aye. Peterson. Aye. Sarley. Aye. Hughes. Aye. Patel, aye. The motion carries nine to zero. Thank you, everyone, Commissioner, I mean, uh, Mr. Lamb. Thank you to the applicant. That actually, I believe, is the last item on our agenda. We are now going to PC business. Um, we did receive committee reports from Commissioner Sarley for Zoka. We received one for LRPC. We received SPRC report. I need to do an LRPC update. I'm sorry? An LRPC update. And the LR, you have an LRPC update? Update, okay. since I sent that earlier today. Okay, go ahead, Commissioner, um, tell me. We will be having LRPC on Wednesday the 26th. Um, instead of doing it with the um, with the, um, with the eight, with the AUG, um, it will be a LRPC, an informational LRPC on the Career Center side. And um, uh, Commissioner Steinberger also provided a um, PFRC report. It said LRPC accidentally, but it was meant to be PFRC. <laughs> yeah. um, she does have a young baby at home. Um, did uh, Commissioner oh. Hughes want to say anything about AUG? I have three rosters. Okay. I have a quick update uh, for Zoko. No. Okay. Thank you very much, Commissioner Sarley. Your update? No Zoko meeting in April. No Zoko meeting? In April. In April. Um, and we have um, rosters to approve as well. I hope everybody saw um, uh, Commissioner Peterson's reminder twice now about the changes to SPRC. Um, Commissioner Peterson, my email address is wrong on the roster. So just an update that when we approve them, we'll approve them with my correct email address. But anyways, I turn it over to you. Okay, thank you, colleagues. So we have three rosters to approve tonight. Sunrise, South Glebe, Inn of Rosalind, and Red Lion Inn. Um, so, colleagues, you recently received the proposed SPR subgroup rosters for Sunrise, South Glebe, Inn at Rosalind, uh, and Red Lion Inn. Um, Madam Chair, I ask for your unanimous consent in approving these rosters after Chair Patel's email address is updated. Um, any objection? Wonderful. Those are approved. Um, I am going to seek unanimous consent to approve the March 6th and March 8th minutes of the Planning Commission. Any objection? Okay. So those are approved as well. Um, that concludes our um, April meeting of the Planning Commission. Commissioner Hughes will represent the Planning Commission at the April 22nd County Board meeting. Thank you to everyone that made this Planning Commission meeting a success. Thank you to all staff. Thank you to my fellow commissioners. Congratulations to Commissioner Schroll. Planning Commission is adjourned for the month of April. Did the baby? Yeah. Oh. <laughs>